Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk. It is 19 minutes past uh, 10 o'clock. You're listening to Views and News on Cape Talk with me, Sarah Jane Makwala King. Good to be with you this morning. Now, in a landmark ruling, the High Court recently ruled that child maintenance arrears could be paid from a defaulting parent's retirement annuity. Now, traditionally, those assets have been regarded as inalienable, meaning that creditors typically can't access them. But the ruling has set a really important precedent changing uh, that in the case of child maintenance. It's um, a hot topic. It's a topic that gets people uh, hot under the collar and quite understandably if you are a parent who has been uh, left with the financial uh, responsibility, the sole financial responsibility of looking after your children in default of your co-parent or other parent. I know some people don't even like the term co-parent because an awful lot of time there's no co-happening. I'm sure that this is going to be a conversation that you're interested in. Joining us this morning to talk about the impact that this ruling is likely to have is uh, Felicity Guest, a financial abuse specialist and also, of course, the founder of the Facebook group uh, or Facebook page, Child Maintenance Difficulties South Africa. Felicity, always good to chat. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. So great to be here. Yeah, an absolute (laughs) pleasure. Can you just talk about the details in the case that came to the court? What was the story here? Sure. So they were married in antenuptial with accrual. And I think it's important to start there. Okay. Then they got separated in 2022. Um, and she applied, I, I'm assuming she applied for Rule 43, because that gives you interim maintenance and co-parenting until the divorce is finalized. Okay. So that agreement was only reached in September um, 2023 or November 2023 and he was ordered to pay 18,000 rand towards rent and um, that was the agreement okay so we've got to say agreement and he didn't pay so so what it looks like is there was a portion to pay for rent and a cash portion so he didn't comply so she applied for a default because he hadn't applied. They then reached an agreement again where he would make up the arrears and he would pay by the end of November. He did not comply again. He then lodged an application for a reduction saying that his, his company of which he is a co-director is in liquidation and he can't afford the maintenance. So his case was before the court. She made an urgent application for arrears. So what is in her favor, and I think this is what people should bear in mind, 10 days after payment is not received, you can approach the courts. Okay. Okay. So she did that very timelessly. So you can see this is end of November. The ruling was actually made at the beginning of, of February. In January, so it's a couple of months, two months. Mm-hmm. She waited 10 days and she approached the courts again. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said he doesn't have money. So her application, in fact, was against him and Discovery because she says he has a retirement fund. So Discovery with a second respondent. So his argument against that this is not, um, this is hastily brought before the court because he has an application for reduction. And the judge... As in he was saying she was jumping the gun. Correct, that they should have considered his reduction first. However, arrears does not impact on a new court ruling. So whatever happened in the past still stands. Correct. 
So the judge rightly said that it is urgent and that this needs to be addressed. And you do have a pension fund, a retirement, so it means you do have the ability to pay or to fulfill that obligation, not to pay. You know, it gives the, the wrong impression. But there is resources available. So they attach that. So in my, when I look at this understanding the behavior, I'm going, okay, so if we look at his behavior, he did not comply. So it took a year. So what did she do for a year before they got the Rule 43? What kind of money conversations were happening then? Was she asking? Was he saying, I don't have? What did she do for a year? So she eventually gets a Rule 43. Then he doesn't comply. And then they come to an agreement, and I believe that they coerced her into the agreement, giving her the impression that she would get her money immediately if she does not go to court. So she agrees because she is confident that they are going to fulfill this commitment now, and immediately he doesn't and applies for a default. So for me, if I look at that behavior, I have to ask a question. It's I can assume quite confidently that this has been problematic for her to get money from him to support his children. So if the acts are all premised on the best interests of the children, over this period of time, how are our children placed at risk to food security, rent security? And in the one case, part of the payment was for occupational therapy for the one child. So we look at these and we go, how are we protecting our children? These laws are meant to protect our children. Not only that, but, you know, just just kind of jumping in there. Yes, that there's the actual, you know, food security rent, all that you're thinking about. The impact on the parent, and, and I know that we can often say it's mum and dad, because that's what it normally is, right? It, it, that's just a fact. But the impact on the parent who is who has got the children for the for the majority of the time is probably the primary caregiver the mental impact of having to deal with that must be excruciating well it's exhausting because exhausting. and i'm going to go back because if you if you're having a conversation and you kind of feel eventually that you're begging for the money or every time you bring up money an argument occurs you start becoming reluctant to have these conversations because of the response to it and that's a form of abuse so you then have to prepare yourself mentally to have this conversation um, and then you start avoid having these conversations because of the impact it has on you. So then we go into another form of abuse. How do you protect yourself from that form of abuse? And that's why a lot of mothers go, mentally and emotionally, I can't cope with this. We've had a message in this morning that said exactly that, which is like, I don't have the energy to do all the court thing, go to court, then prove to somebody, um, prove to a court that this person isn't fulfilling their financial obligation. There's just not the time to take time off work, to have to go through the court process, to do that emotionally, and you're still having to parent um, while you're just coming up with, with somebody who is being purposefully often obstructive. Um, at 26 minutes past 10 o'clock, we're having a conversation this morning uh, with uh, Felicity Guest, who of course is a financial abuse specialist and the founder of the Facebook group uh, Child Maintenance Difficulties South Africa. And we're speaking specifically uh, about this landmark ruling, and it is a landmark ruling um, from the Hi High Court or Constitutional Court? High Court. The High Court, okay. Uh, which ruled that child maintenance arrears could be paid from a defaulting parent's retirement annuity. And Felicity set out the facts of the case uh, for us 
previously um, retirement annuities have been regarded as inalienable assets so creditors haven't typically been able to access them the only way that you would be able to access uh, a retirement annuity is in the event of retirement death or divorce but this ruling has really uh, set a precedent what what does this ruling mean then for for parents who have had to fight to get maintenance from from a, another parent so you've been able to attach pensions for some time yeah okay um so we know that as um markets change and they bring in different products to suit different needs we have to be realistic and go, the possibility of developing certain products is to exclude certain people having access from them. And and that, I believe, is deliberate. I've sat in many conversations with financial planners, advisors, lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, for a long period of time. So products are developed with, to safeguard the person who has the policy. Rightly so, but not at the expense of other people. Because then we have to go, what is the moral obligation here to protect vulnerable people, and particularly children? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. So you've been able to attach pensions for some time. So when we were discussing the law reform, the maintenance law reform last year, one of the things I also noted was trust funds and trust accounts and trusts are these ego trusts specifically to exclude possible claims in the future. So that, that that's also been protected. That will be addressed and is changing in the amendment. So they're aware of these loopholes. But they're playing catch up, you know, then we have to discuss it, then there's legislation, then it has to be passed, and then we have to educate people. Yeah. What do you think this means? There's, there's, all, there's often an awful lot of criticism leveled at the courts about how they deal with child support. Um, your page is filled with people, again, mostly women, who have just exhausted themselves, exhausted their finances, trying to get maintenance from a defaulting parent and have and say often the courts just won't help the system. What does this decision signify from the courts? Is it should we be hopeful that this might be we might be looking at a change in how the courts view maintenance or, or are you not hopeful? I think that's where we have to start. You know, what is the directives and policies for that? Because we have the legislation and it keeps evolving. So we have the legislation. So what are the gaps and barriers? One, it's training. Two, it's political will. Three, it's understanding why you have to implement the Maintenance Act. So unfortunately, there's a lot, um, just like the Domestic Violence Act, where there is discretionary choices by certain people. So, for example, an interim order is at the discretion of a maintenance officer. So what has that influence? Is that influenced by his own bias? What criteria is he using to determine? Because it's not very clear. So you can go to a different court and get a different interpretation. Depends who you see. So just like the Domestic Violence Act, those discretionary words are being removed from the Act. So that's one thing. But training, education and and understanding what, that this is a form of abuse and how this puts children and women at risk to poverty to um, domestic violence gender-based violence because women have to choose violence over poverty money gets cut off we're talking child maintenance arrears this morning streaming countrywide on prime media plus on dstv channel 885 and across the city on 567 a.m 567 a.m 
It is 10.33. We're talking this morning uh, about uh, child maintenance, specifically a high court ruling which has uh, recently uh, decided that child maintenance arrears could be paid from a defaulting parent's retirement annuity. Previously, a retirement annuity has been considered as an inalienable asset, so you couldn't attach to it. But uh, this ruling um, has... the change that and it's set a precedent, a really important precedent um, in that case. Uh, we're joined this morning by Felicity Guest, financial abuse specialist uh, and the founder of the Facebook page Child Maintenance Difficulties. I just want to take a listen to uh, a voice note that we've had in. This conversation certainly triggers me. I've given up in the court system some years ago and got no maintenance. Didn't even get that far. Uh, a terrible, terrible experience and I can well imagine how um, others like me have gone through this just emotionally tears you i'd like to know from your guest um how does one proactively prepare for the possibility which one doesn't want to think about when one gets married and has children or has children with someone that there is going to be this inevitable split perhaps is there anything proactively that one can do to avoid that shock and then finding how hard it actually is to access legal support and then get into the courts that's a great question, Felicity. So if we, before we make major decisions in our lives, whether it's to change a job or invest money, people normally do a risk assessment, right? And I believe that's what we should be doing when we are considering committing to a relationship or getting married. A risk assessment of our future partner. Of our future, of what our future looks like. But again, nobody gets married with the idea of getting divorced, despite our statistics that two out of three marriages end in divorce. So that's part of the risk assessment. It's. I was asking you during the news, and it's and it's a difficult question, and and there were, and and some people might not like this question, but when I look at when we look at the stats and when we look at the your, your Facebook group, and all it's men are the main defaulters, yeah. Can you explain to me in your experience why is it that men don't want to pay for their kids? I think that it's a complex question to answer. I want to stop you there, Felicity. Not all men. Please don't message in and say it's not me. If it's not you, then it's not you. Why do defaulting men not want to pay for their kids? Okay, so we have to acknowledge that the anecdotal evidence shows us, because there's not sufficient research, which is problematic, that over 60% of mothers are getting zero. So this is not a this is a crisis in this country. Over 60% get nothing. So you have 60% of mothers raising children of which 70% of fathers are absent. So the burden is placed on the primary caregiver, which in the majority is women. Um, so why don't men want to pay maintenance? I believe that money is um, a powerful tool to use to punish the ex-partner, irrespective of the impact it has on children. So when I try to understand all of this, because it's irrespective of your race, religion, culture, socioeconomics, um, and it's a global thing, just by the way, but it's more endemic here. I started, these distinct patterns, okay, and I have my own lived experience. So I came across some research that talks about a biological father and a social father. So they can be one and the same. 
I've added financial father to that. Mm. So when you're in relationship with somebody, whether you're married to them or not, and you have children, that father will show up as a bi- he is a biological father. He will show up presently as the social father, doing the parenting, that social fathering. But it's a playbook. I promise you, it's almost predictable in the majority. Okay, we're generalizing here. So if that relationship ends, the father tends to start removing himself from being a social father. And that happens over a period of time. parenting is tied to the mother. Correct. So if he has another relationship and that woman has children, her children will benefit from him supporting her children because she might also be a victim. She, the father of her children might not be paying. So she's going, oh my gosh, he has a man. He, he's so amazing. He's helping me out, supporting my children. So she doesn't pursue the father, the biological father, because he's now supplemented. He's showing up as the social and the financial father. Only while they're in relationship. Because the research shows us that he wants to please her. So the children benefit by default. Because he wants to be in relationship and he wants the benefit of that relationship. So he will do what he needs to. But he's also fulfilling this um, this part of him that wants to father. The strange thing is why through the woman. So when he breaks up with her, he's going to move on to the next one. And so the cycle repeats itself. It's playbook. When I coach my clients, I can go, where are you on this journey you're separated. Are either one of you in relationship? No, we're not. I'm going, well, these are the expectations. <laughs> okay. And when this happens, if this happens, this is a possibility this could happen because, I mean, there's no guarantee. Um, some women go, when I describe it to them, they go, oh, my gosh, that's exactly what happened. He used to see them every weekend. He used to see them every two weeks. And over a period of time, he then it was only a month, then every other month. And, and the State of Fatherhood in South Africa report in 2021, the research that was done there, part of that is one, there is an economic thing and the way that men are socialized to be providers and protectors. So this builds into the social father. So if he's not physically there, can he be the protector? So that's how he's socialized. So he's feeling inadequate. So he withdraws that part of his identity. Um, and then if he can't afford to do it, he's embarrassed. And I mean, I think most parents who can't get jobs, like, and there are those parents, you know, who consistent, our unemployment rate is a reality of that. So we can't say people are just too lazy, they don't want to. There are many that go day after day to try and find employment or have casual work to be able to provide. And because they feel bad because they can't provide, they start distancing themselves from their children. But as you say, Felicity, and that is, that is yeah, and I, and I, what what you're saying is so fascinating to me. As you say, it goes across race, across um, race, socioeconomic mm. status. So you could have a guy who's the CEO of a company, and he's behaving in the same mm. way as a guy who's looking for work. Mm. That that's what to me is so fascinating about it. I have seen this time and time again across my social group of of women whose husbands were there they were doing the school run they were doing this they were there for sports day they were there the divorce happens and you can't find this guy but he's at the new woman in his life's children's sports day isn't that what and and crucially to this conversation the money thing the money you know why is it that they and you've just explained that fascinatingly and i and i think we need to look at that it isn't it there's always a, as you say, there's always a why. Um, do you expect that there's likely to be any pushback to this case? 
Somebody might take it on appeal. Right. And again, let's have a look at that. Who who can take it on appeal? Somebody with money. And that speaks to the imbalance of power. And for me, I keep saying that um, we have to look at the behavior and understand this behavior. It is primarily an imbalance of power. Who carries that power? The person with money. What are the impacts thereof? What is the benefit of having that money? You have access to justice. You can go to high court. You can challenge these rulings. She was able to go to high court. I don't know um, what her financial means were with her. Most get family support to be able to take these cases to high. What about the lady who doesn't even have bus fare to go to a maintenance regional local court? What are her chances of getting justice? And that's the majority. So wonderful we can have these amazing precedents. Who's going to be able to get that, that ruling to benefit her own personal situation? Yeah, yeah. And, and yes, the, the financial a- a aspect is, is obviously a factor. But I think, and it's one thing that we can't underplay, is the, the emotional energy and the capacity um, that is being put on the primary caregiver and the one who is having to make a plan because so-and-so hasn't paid this month. Um, Messages that we are getting in are talking about, I don't have the energy and that that the court needs to be listening to that something needs to be done to make that easier surely so if we what does energy mean okay so we've reduced it to a simple word like energy but let's just look at that that any the word energy means the emotional the psychological the mental as well as the material energy yeah because again the burden is the labor is placed on the person who's already financially compromised. Our Maintenance Act needs reform, radical reform. It, there's nothing in our Maintenance Act that protects, and I'm going to say it because in the majority it's women, does not protect the applicant who is the primary caregiver. It, there's nothing in the Act that protects him because it's based on the best interests of the child. When I presented at the DOJ maintenance working session in July, my presentation was the child does not have locus dandy in the court, but the Act is premised on the best interests of the children. So it is represented by, in the majority, the mother. But where is she protected? When the stats show us the majority of women are unemployed, the economic disparity between the genders, gender-based violence, the research also shows us that the more educated you are, the, the, um, the more chance you have of getting or implementing child support. Sure. So if we take all of that, you can understand why where applicants are in the majority women, why they're having, there's no protection. Everything, according to our constitution, because of the past, that nobody will be found guilty unless every aspect of the law is being pursued. Felicity, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. You are um, a wealth of knowledge uh, and support for a lot of people. Uh, the Facebook page, if you are interested, is Child Maintenance Difficulties uh, South Africa. Felicity Guest is a financial abuse specialist and the founder of that Facebook page. It's 